Welcome to the Alia Graphic Podcast. And uh, I'm Yuri Rutia from Kingston Libraries in Victoria. I'm speaking from Bumburong land of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded and we need a treaty. Uh, today, we have an awesome guest that I'm sure Australians are very familiar with. She's a wonder woman of Australian creators. She's also been delving into black magic and we're honored to be talking to Nicola Scott. Hi there, thanks for having me. Uh, how's, how's everything going? Uh, considering the state of the world, um, it's pretty good uh, up here, Shay Scott. Um, we're, we're surviving uh, 2020 and 2021 pretty well, all things considered. Yeah, actually, it seems like you haven't really stopped working during the pandemic. Um, how uh, not really. Yeah, uh, there was a brief period of time, like right at the beginning of lockdown, when I think the whole world went into this state of what's happening. Um, it was quite sort of shocking and everything kind of stopped for a little bit. So there was about, I think probably about six weeks where there was not a lot happening. I, I think I did have some work during that time, but a lot of it was kind of pausing a little bit because, you know, no one knew what the schedule was going to be. So things did kind of shut down and I appreciated that because I was also in a panic like everybody else. And it was yeah. nice to sort of have that freedom to just uh, quietly freak out on the sofa or in the kitchen or uh, in the garden uh, about where the world was going. But it wasn't too long before uh, work sort of picked up its momentum again and I felt that sort of desperate need to sort of get things moving again. Um, and so, yeah, there was only a brief period of time, but, but after that it was all sort of back to normal, you know, ish. We didn't leave the house for six months, but yes. um, other than that, work-wise, yes, everything was reasonably back to normal. Yeah, I, I imagine also like starting to draw again and get back to that routine kind of would have given you a bit of, I don't know, a sense of normalcy, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was very sort of grounding, you know, knowing that I was very lucky to not only have a job that could continue, but, you know, I've spent 20 years working from home, so I've already got my routines in place. So just sort of being able to literally go back to normal-ish uh, uh, was very reassuring. Yeah, for, for, for us, it was a little bit like that as well with the library. Like, you know, we closed all the libraries and then it's like, yeah. well, what can we do now? Because people can't come to the library. We can't go to the library. But, you know, what are the kind of things that we could do maybe from home and... Um, and of course, we had a huge uptake of uh, people wanting digital services or so ebooks and right uh, and digital comics as well. Of course, and, yeah, that's uh, great. We have a movie streaming service and things like that as well at the library that um, it's free. You can so yeah, things like that. Anyway, um, now uh, let's take it back. Um, you didn't really read comics as a kid. From oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but so, what are the earliest comics that you remember reading and and that you connected to? 
Okay. Well, I, I definitely encountered a few comics here and there as a kid. Um, so this is pre-Diamond, pre-sort of specialty stores. This is when comics were still available at the news agency. And uh, more often than not, I would see sort of very Kirby-style art on like Thor and Hulk books, you know, just sort of characters that I knew of ephemerally, but um, I didn't at all relate to. And so it just didn't seem like it was for me, though I would occasionally see a comic that had Wonder Woman on the cover or Superman on the cover or Batman on the cover. And those were characters that I did connect to because of the Super Friends cartoon and the Batman, Wonder Woman and Superman TV shows and movies and, you know, that sort of yeah. culture of superheroes that was around in the 70s gave me some uh, access and introduction to superheroes. And that was kind of where I fell in love with them. Um, and because of that and because I could draw, I was always drawing these superheroes. But the comic book versions of them, which, you know, obviously I now know is the source material, but at the time I didn't know that that was a thing. I thought it was just, here's another version of a character that I know, but this is a version that I don't relate to. You know, it didn't make sense to me because it was different from the versions that I knew. And so I, I didn't really connect with comics. Uh, that well but in sort of my mid to late teens uh I worked with a friend who was a big comic book reader and he introduced me to uh the idea of the crisis crisis on infinite earths which was a bit sort of confusing and mind-boggling um but also Batman you won Dark Knight Returns George Perez's Wonder Woman and those sort of uh, uh, combination of things really sort of opened me up to what comics are and what they can be and they were challenging in a way more interesting way. Um, And while that sort of did influence my drawing of these characters quite a bit I still didn't see myself as pursuing that as a career because it was too far away I didn't understand any pathways to the industry and I didn't really understand it as a job you know it it just wasn't something that was that occurred to me strangely yeah well um Infinite Earths is definitely not a great introduction for someone starting because it's just um, yeah, it's the culmination of so much and yeah, but uh, but but yeah, great great titles um, definitely. Now uh, um, there was a turning point or a catalyst when you decided I want to do comics and yeah, and I know that you also went to San Diego Comic Con uh with a folio and you know uh what what prompted that because that that's that's quite amazing that suddenly you kind of decide well this is what i want to do and actually i'm going to 
change everything in my life. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, which I and did. Yeah. drop everything and go there and and give this a uh, red hot go. Well, it's sort of uh, the career that I had been chasing. And I had been doing this like from a young age. So I think this is possibly why I hadn't really considered uh, drawing comic, you know, why, why it hadn't occurred to me was because I was too sort of focused on having an acting career. I went to a performing arts high school where I got to major in acting and I went to an acting school after high school. Um, and that was kind of the career that I was pursuing. And for good deal of time in my 20s I didn't really draw much at all because drawing had been a thing that I'm just sort of doodle on my schoolwork you know when I already had a pen in my hand and paper in front of me I would just start drawing you know I'd stop listening to the teacher I'd stop paying attention I'd just start drawing so that was kind of where all my practice was um and in my 20s when I sort of didn't really have a pen in my hand very often or paper in front of me except for when I was sitting in front of the telephone um I just didn't draw that much and so again it sort of didn't really occur to me and during that time I did encounter comics a few more times uh I know Kingdom Come came out at some point in the sort of mid to late 90s and that was a thing that sort of really affected me it was just sort of like here is another really interesting take of these heroes in an art style that just completely surprised me as I'm sure it did for everybody you know it's it's wow. still considered yeah, it's, so iconic it's um, a huge um graphic novel that's uh, yeah. Um, yeah and the art's incredible as well yeah oh uh, unbelievable um and I think the real turning point for me was after I had actively uh, put the idea of an acting career in a box because I had by this stage spent about a decade pursuing it with very unsatisfying results. Um, I did a, a, a fair amount of advertising in the 90s um, which is good money, but it's not really acting. And so it was very, um, you know, not really scratching the itch that I had. Um, and kind of like, ridiculously, I can sort of see it now. Yeah. But at the time, I was just starting to look my age because I had always looked older than I was. Mm. Um, and I was just starting to look my age and that was probably when I should have doubled down and really sort of aggressively pursued uh, acting in a more strategic way. But I was just burnt out by that stage. Um, yeah. And so I decided like that I needed to give it up. To something creative though. You, 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 oh, 100%. I come of... from a creative family. So there was no, there was no way myself or my sisters were going to, uh, have a, a, a stable, sort of reliable office situated job that just wasn't in the cards for us. You know, um, my elder sister is a graphic designer and even though she did work in um, an office, by the time I was in sort of halfway through high school, she already had her own business yeah. and 
was incredibly successful. So I, you know, part of the reason why I was burning out with acting was because I've got these two older sisters who had pursued creative careers that had found very early, very quick, very big success. Mm. Um, my middle sister is a singer-songwriter and she had had a sort of big success in the um, late 80s, early 90s. And so I had this idea that, you know, if you've got the talent and you're prepared to do the hard work, then the success will come because that was the example that had been set for me by my sister. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had been told by my teachers that I had the talent and I was very diligent about doing the work with acting, um, but it didn't come. So uh, I was just sort of burnt out. And once that had happened, uh, I spent about, I can't believe it took this long, but it didn't. I spent about 18 months trying to work out what other creative thing I could do mm-hmm. that I could make a living in. And uh, during my time, during that sort of, um, you know, all of my 20s, I had made a lot of costumes um, for, you know, theatre things that I'd been in, for theatre things that my friends had been in. So I was like, okay, that's something that I can do. I'd done production design on a number of short films. So that was something that I could do. There were all these sort of creative avenues that seemed like possibilities. Uh, But I started sort of making a list of practically what I want out of a career. And uh, one by one, I just sort of started crossing those things off all of these sort of ideas that had come to mind I'd just be like no I don't want to do that because of this reason that seems like a really sane reason I don't want to do that I don't want to do this I don't want to do this and so I'd got it down to drawing and it was like what the hell am I going to do with drawing and instead of like and this was literally the turning point it was like a total 180 um instead of asking myself the question what can I do with the talents that I have or the skills that I have? Instead, I ask myself the question, what do I want to do? And that question occurred to me on a Sunday morning and it was immediately followed by, I wish I could just draw Wonder Woman. And that was immediately followed by the realisation that that's a real job that someone has because Wonder Woman comes from comic books and she's in a comic book. So someone is drawing Wonder Woman and getting paid for it. That's the job that I want. And that was literally the, the moment. It all happened in a second. <laughs> and from that moment on, it was like, this is what I'm going to do. I don't know anything about it. I don't know anyone who does it. I have no idea what the job entails. I don't know, I don't, I don't know anything other than that's what I want. I want to get paid to draw Wonder Woman. Um, And that was kind of what started my journey. And I think because I had had passion and disappointment in a creative career, Mm -hmm. I just wasn't prepared to be disappointed in my next decision. And so I just attacked it way more pragmatically. And that sort of going to San Diego Comic-Con for the first time, that decision came out of 
having met a few Australian comic book creators, um, you know, in a, in a pretty short period of time, not long after I'd made this decision, I sort of, you know, started to meet these guys. And I started sort of researching and, you know, my research involved Wizard Magazine because the internet wasn't really what it is now. Um, and I saw a half-page ad in Wizard Magazine for San Diego Comic-Con. And I was, and it, it said in the ad, the biggest convention in the world. And I was like, it's the biggest, I'm going to go there. And so I had said to my Australian friends, my new Australian comic book creator friends, have any of you heard of San Diego Comic-Con? To which they all went, yeah. yeah. And I was like, right, okay, I've just heard about it. I just bought a ticket, I'm going. And they were sort of a little bit like, that's just a thing that you can do. And I was like, fuck yeah, let's go. And <laughs> uh, I did end up sort of convincing a couple of guys to also come. Like we didn't travel together, but we sort of hung out together a lot. Um, yeah. And when, you know, we sort of stayed at the same hotel, you know, I'd, I'd sort of done quite a bit of hustle. And obviously going to San Diego Comic-Con, it was not what it is, again, not what it is now. It was 20 years ago. but uh, it was still huge, especially by comparison to anything that was here. Yeah. And that, that was incredibly overwhelming on top of the fact that I had no idea what I was doing because I still didn't understand the industry and I still didn't understand the job that I had decided I wanted. Yeah. Um, but I did come away from that experience going, Oh, okay. Now I feel like I know what is required of me. Yeah. I remember saying to the guys on Sunday afternoon when we were sort of wrapping up our experience of the show, because uh, we'd all sort of gone off in different directions doing our own hustle and we had all sort of been completely overwhelmed and um, uh, uh, <laughs> had the wind knocked out of us really by the reality of the situation and their kind of response was well that was devastating I don't think I could do this again and my response was yeah that was devastating but I think I have to be here next year I'm gonna come back next year and I went back the next year and I went back the year after that yeah. and each time I was there I just sort of learned what I should do for the next year uh, in order to get better, in order to get more employable, in order to meet new people and yeah. the right kind of people. Um, so that's long, kind of how, long did how that all happened. From the moment that you, that you decided to start doing this to, to kind of getting a job and getting... Right. Well, for, from the moment I decided to do that to getting my first job was about six months, I think, which was here in Australia. It was working for, it was doing some covers for Phosphorescent Comics, which at the time was one of the only publishers um, of comics. And that was kind of what made me feel like, oh, okay, it's a really small business here. Uh, if I'm going to make a living, it's not going to be staying here. 
uh, I'm going to have to go where the money is, which is where the industry is, which is in America. You know, it was like, I knew I wasn't going to do European comics. I knew I wasn't going to do Japanese comics. I wanted to do superheroes. So that's America, um, which was, you know, logical, but I, my brain had to get there. Um, and uh, sort of during that year, so I think from the time I made the decision to going to San Diego for the first time, was about a year and a half, maybe a bit less, I think uh, about a year and a half. And I didn't come away from that first show with a job, but it had opened up my, um, it had opened up my uh, awareness and access to other people trying to hustle. And so through that, I started doing some uh, web comics for free uh, with other people who were trying to break in. And the second year I went to San Diego Comic Con, I got three. I got three jobs. Um, one of them was for Top Cow. One of them was for a small press guy. One of them was. Oh, a, a how to draw comic books book. It was like, you know, I've yet to draw one, but here, here am I being an artist contributing to a how to draw comic books book. Um, and uh, I, I met a whole lot more people. And the third time I went, I got a Star Wars job, which paid really well, was high exposure. It was the kind of thing that I could say to all of my non-nerdy friends and family, yep. I'm drawing Star Wars and they would all go, oh, I know oh, what that that's is. that's cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. that, that, that sort of took, uh, you know, two and a half years, three and a, three and a half years. That's cool. And then the next time was, was DC. So it didn't take very long at all. Yeah, um, that, that's actually pretty quick, yeah. It was pretty quick, and a lot of that was to do with the fact that I was uh, being very strategic about yeah. the hustle. And, and your uh, I was, well, thank you, but it, it sort of was a lot to do with honing that talent and improving my skills because my skills were, were completely lacking at the time. Yeah. Um, when I started. So it, it, it came down to a lot of hustle, a lot of sort of strategic decisions. Um, I knew that I was going to be competing with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people trying to break into this business where there's, you know, a limited number of jobs. Yeah. So I wanted to make myself as employable as possible. But I also needed to understand that I was dealing with people who've been reading I'm competing with people who have been reading comic books their whole lives. So they're really invested. They really know everything. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there, there was definitely gatekeeper uh, behavior around at the time, but it wasn't what it turned into when social media really kicked into gear. And in fact, I think I really benefited from being uh a woman trying to break into mainstream because at the time there weren't that many women in mainstream. Yeah. And I think there were, you know, the, the world was sort of going through 
a phase where it was feeling very exciting to have women uh, involved in the business and editors were sort of way more um, curious about female creators getting involved. And so I was sort of lucky enough to ride that wave. You know, when, when I was breaking in, I was not long after Gail Simone, you know, she was just breaking in just before me. Amanda Connor had been around for a long time, but she was just starting to sort of really become uh, more broadly known. Um, And so I sort of had that benefit of uh, being a little bit exciting as, as a new sort of female creator being an Australian really sort of opened some doors. You know, people were fascinated. It was like, there's someone from Australia here? Yeah. And she's like a, a woman? What? <laughs> you something know? different, something that stands out, something like, wait, wait a second, what? Yeah. And like then, every year I went back yeah. to San Diego, uh, everyone remembered seeing me the year before. They didn't necessarily yeah. remember my name, but they would say, oh, I saw you last year. And I'd be like, yep. And they would go, oh, okay, let me look at your folio. So... I was managing to sort of keep reinforcing this impression by continuing to go yeah. back every year and um, and sort of build my my catalogue of work in the in the period of time in between. Yeah, that's cool. Now you you've actually done a lot of work for DC. Yeah. And and you know, so th- this is kind of like a two part question, I guess. Well, one is how did that come about? Uh, and the second one is how does an Australian get into, you know, DC or Marvel or Image or, you know, one of those big names? Right. Well, from the very beginning, like literally the decision revolved around being able to draw Wonder Woman. So I was from the very beginning kind of steering my ship towards DC all the time. Um, There were a number of times where my career was sort of starting to take a, um illustrated book uh direction um for sort of non-comic book specific publishers uh like HarperCollins like Random House you know sort of doing a few jobs here and there and they were all good in terms of giving me some experience and uh letting me hone my skills and trying new things and giving me interesting credits and paying me. But I kept steering myself back towards specifically DC Comics. Um, I didn't know that many Marvel characters, so I wasn't really aiming my my boat there. And at the time, Marvel was sort of a little bit more bro-y than it is now. And I was sort of, you know, I knew that I needed to tread around that kind of culture pretty yeah cautiously being a sort of, you know, uh, a a late twenties, early thirties, uh, single woman. Um, I didn't want to find myself in a position where, uh, I, 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 I just sort of, I didn't want to get anywhere in my career and it, it in any way, uh, could be seen as uh, I had slept my way there because it was such a boy business. Yeah. It was like I have to keep myself very uh, uh, out of bounds. 
Um, So, you know, I'd sort of set myself this rule. I'm not going to date anyone in this business because uh, that's, that's going to work against me, not for me. So, um, and because it was sort of, you know, a bit of, bit of, bit of bro culture at Marvel that also, you know, sort of scared me a little bit. Um, But, but, mainly DC because they had more characters that I knew. They had Wonder Woman. They had more female-led books, you know, like titles that were actually named for female characters. So that that was a big part of my goal. And I think it was very clear from the very first time I went to San Diego because of the contents of my portfolio that Wonder Woman was what I was interested in. And, uh, every editor would say to me because I always had Wonder Woman in my portfolio and I knew that I was bringing something a little bit different to the character than um, a lot of the contemporary artists and a lot of my sort of peers trying to break in were bringing um, to the character. I was Mm. sort of bringing a slightly different flavour, a sort of, you know, female perspective to a female character. and it, I, I would always get a compliment from any editor at any company because everyone knows who Wonder Woman is. They'd always say to me, oh, you draw a great Wonder Woman. So that was a big part of the reason why I always had her in my folio was because I knew I could win anyone over with my, with my Wonder Woman. Um, but also it sort of opened up the conversation. So it didn't take long before everybody knew that that's what I wanted, <laughs> um, yeah. including all the editors at DC. And uh, I kept sort of steering myself back there. And anytime I was in New York, which, you know, happened a couple of times while I was trying to break in, I would try and make a, an appointment with any of the editors that I knew there to uh, come in and they, so they, they knew that I was around and yeah. they were giving me some time in terms of sort of, okay, so you're a person that's here. You've clearly got some talent. Um, but they could recognize that I was very green, that I was very new. Um, and before a big company like that, uh, gives you a book, which, uh, because of their scheduling you have to sort of be able to jump in it's like sort of jumping into a skipping rope you've got to jump in and then keep up yeah Um, you need to kind of demonstrate that you can deliver you know yeah each a day or something like that you know 100 percent saying that i guess and and that sort of you prove that by working for all of the smaller companies, you know, any and all of the smaller companies, and you show that you've got the body of work behind you, that this isn't something that you spent a week drawing. That's why it's good. It's something that you spent a day drawing. That's why it's good. So they were aware of me and uh, a big turning point, I think for me was uh, one particular post on a website. So this is back forum days. Again, it was still, pre-social media um back when there were forums so early 2000s I posted a bunch of my Wonder Woman folio art um and uh a whole lot of comic book creators like existing comic book creators like Gail Simone like uh Greg Rucker um like Jeff Johns they all saw it 
and they all commented on it. And at the time, Greg uh, had just started his Wonder Woman run. Um, And actually, no, no, he'd been on it for about a year by this stage. So I think by this point, Drew Johnson was close to the end of his contribution. And so Greg started hustling his editor to get me to be the next Wonder Woman artist. And the editor already knew who I was and was just sort of like, oh, okay, we know her, but she's not ready. Um, And Gail Simone was trying to hustle uh, with, I forgot what book she was on at the time, Um, but she was sort of trying to hustle with her editors. So not only was I hustling the editors, but I also had the great fortune of having these writers who were established at the company on my side hustling for me as well. And I didn't know about that until much later. Um, And as it happened, the next time I was at San Diego Comic-Con, you know, I had met Greg, I had met Gail. Uh, They were both sort of trying to work with me, whether it was a DC or not. I think, you know, they both liked, oh, my God, here's a female artist. we should try and work together. And so at the time I was trying to, Greg and I were going to do a queen and country story arc. And so I had a sort of big long meeting with Greg and we talked about queen and country and we talked about what he wants to do with the next arc of that and this, that and the other. And so I felt like that was probably what my next six months was going to be, was working with Greg on this story. And then on the Sunday afternoon, Gail Simone came running up to me saying, I think there's going to be an opening on Birds of Prey. You should go and see the editor. And I was like, who is the editor? And she said, it's Mike Carlin. And I said, I don't know Mike Carlin. He's like one of the few DC editors that I've had no contact with. And she said, it's that guy. right?" So (laughs) I went up to him with my portfolio. And this is Sunday afternoon. The show is like flattening out. Um, And I went up to my car and I said, hello, (laughs) I'm Nicholas Scott and here's my portfolio. And he said to me, I know who you are. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay. So I didn't know (laughs) if that was a good thing or a bad thing. And he just sort of flipped through my folio and he started asking me questions. And those questions were practical questions, not anything else. Like, you know, when are you going home? And I was like, tomorrow. And he was like, when do you arrive home? <laughs> and I was like, oh, uh, you know, in, in a 48 hours from now kind of thing. And he was like, okay, if you were to receive a script, how quickly could you start? And I was like, when I got off the plane? <laughs> and he was like, okay, because uh, we have a script waiting. Um, do you think you're a Birds of Prey kind of girl? And I'm like, I'm a redhead with glasses. Of course I am. Let's go. And yeah. He said to me, we've never worked with anyone from Australia before, so let's see how this goes. Because this is back in the day where they had to, where I had to FedEx them my art. So I would do, I think for the first year, I would do a half issue and I would FedEx it. Uh, And they were still in New York at the time. So it was sort of, it was quite a process, um, yeah, but that was right. kind of what started my my job at DC was doing Birds of Prey and it really just, you know, 
came about because I was at San Diego and I had spent, you know, the, the four and a half years leading up to that doing all my hustle. Um, and uh, that was, there, there was no indication if that was just a one-off job. Like I didn't know if I was filling in for an artist. Yeah. I, I didn't quite un, I know what the context was, but my first issue was going to be issue 100. So it was already a bit of a landmark issue. I think it was a couple yeah. of extra pages. Um, and it was the beginning of a new story arc. And so I thought, okay, I've got the job that I've been aiming for. A job at DC Comics was what the goal had been. Yeah. I just got it. Now I have to not lose it because that's the first thing that happens with anyone that gets one of these jobs is the reality of having to do it. Yeah. You can get in your head, you can freak yourself out, you can be late mm. with your deadlines, you can, whatever it is. It was like, right, okay, I finally got it. Now I've got to make sure I don't lose it. And so I just shut up and I did the job and it wasn't long before the script for the next issue arrived in my inbox. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm doing the next one. <laughs> and then the next one. And then they sort of solicited that issue and they announced um, that I was the artist on the book and the, the forum started talking about me being the new ongoing artist. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to keep my trap shut and just keep drawing. And I drew 13 but issues. But you learned about it from the news, from the media. Well, I didn't ask, I didn't, I didn't want to question, you know, I That's don't know awesome. that they knew. I think they might have just assumed yeah. that, you know, if it's the beginning of a story arc that, yeah. you know, whoever this artist is, is the new artist. Yeah. So I just shut up and just did the job. Yeah. And as that arc was wrapping up, he started talking about the next arc and so it was like oh okay so this is my job now <laughs> I'll just I'll just keep keep shutting up and keep doing it and yeah. I didn't miss an issue for 13 issues which I have never done since um you know I, I tend to do a story arc and then take a break for an yep. issue and then you know pick up another story arc mm -hmm. um but for 13 13 issues in a row I did not miss a beat and by the time I went back to San Diego the following year, my editor had said to me, this is going great. I'm going to make sure that you get an exclusive contract. And That's so awesome. that was very reassuring um, and amazing. very exciting. And I was signed to an exclusive to them for over a decade. So uh, that was all really fantastic. And uh and that, you know, I was on Birds of Prey for two and a half years mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I left that job because another job presented itself on a different title. That was going to be a little bit of a step up and almost every sort of major step up in my career happened because I was at San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah. Now, um, hmm, I know that we shouldn't have favourites, but I know... I know your favorite is Wonder Woman. You've made yep. that very, very clear. Oh yeah. Out of all the DC work that you've done though, is there a favorite run or a favorite story arc that you have? Oh. Yeah, look, I, I definitely have a few. 
Um, I think the my favorite job that I have done is Wonder Woman Year One because it just meant so much to me. It wasn't really super enjoyable to do because it was such a big lifetime achievement goal. Um, The doing of it was quite overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It it wasn't something that I could just, you know, do and feel comfortable about. I was I was feeling very anxious about the whole thing. So that was that was a lot. But it's probably the thing that I'm the most proud of. Um, my favourite scene in all of the series that I've done was a quiet two or three-page scene, I think, in an issue of Secret Six that was just very non-comic booky. It was It was a very sort of odd scene that uh, Gail Simone had written that... Mm-hmm. I sort of emailed her immediately upon reading the script to say that scene is extraordinary. And she said, you know, I wouldn't have written that scene for anybody else because you'll understand how nuanced it is. And so I was, I really enjoyed doing that scene. That was a scene between two characters uh, called Bane and Scandal Savage. Um, It was just an, an unusual comic scene that I, I really enjoyed. Your, your kind of acting experience uh, in the past kind of helps you with those kind of the smaller Oh yeah. The, the more intimate scenes or character scenes, you know, and then I can't ones. tell you how much my acting experience or just sort of my my overall theater experience uh has contributed to my current job because I act out all the characters. So I'm constantly looking for layers of meaning in, in every line of dialogue mm-hmm. and sort of being able to act out all of the characters is quite fun. Um, you know, blocking a scene, sort of, you know, working out what the space is that the characters are in and then working out where all those characters need to be for everything to flow and yeah. for you know, the camera angles to keep everybody in a, in, in a perspective that is not confusing for the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's made me very conscious of my visual storytelling. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and sort of, you know, the, the being, having made costumes before, I kind of know how clothing works uh, yeah. in a sort of uh, intrinsic way. Um, and so that that's sort of been really really satisfying too. But yeah, it's sort of my, all all of my acting experiences kind of come into play somewhere along the line uh, in my comic book work. That's awesome. Now we should move on to Black Magic, which is the sure. creator-owned series that you you're working on with Greg Raka. and you won the 2019 Aurelis Award for Best Graphic Novel, and. It's a great series. I will love it. And volume three came out recently. So, That's right. of course, I have to ask, when can we expect the series to continue? Oh, my God. Because that was, that yeah. was uh, Ascension 1. <laughs> so yes. when's 2 coming? Oh, boy. So the, <laughs> the original idea... And this, the, the original story that we were planning to tell is still the story that we're going to tell. 
And so I know that we are halfway through the story. There is, you know, we're, we're literally at the halfway point. There, there is three more trades worth of story to tell. Good to um, we are essentially halfway through act two of the story. Yep. Um, the, the, problem, the problem though is because I paint the book, it takes quite a bit longer to produce than if I was just drawing the book and someone was colouring it. Um, so that sort of slowed the whole process down. But also in between doing our first trade and our second trade, actually I'd already started on the second series of uh, the second arc. Um, we got our Wonder Woman year one job. And that was just, you know, we, we sort of really talked about can we, can we put black magic on hold while we do this job? Um, and I think the answer was we cannot not do this job. So we're, we're going to be doing Wonder Woman and Black Magic. We'll just have to go on hold. And so that started the putting it on hold in between each arc yeah. thing, uh, which we haven't ever really recovered from because ever since then, um, Greg has been incredibly busy with like big wig Hollywood stuff. Yeah. Um, and so he's not in the same position to deliver scripts as quickly as I might need them. And because of that sort of, you know, more flexible schedule that we kind of had to uh, give ourselves, I took advantage of that and sort of did things like, you know, we moved out of the city, which you know, we've been talking about doing for a long time, but never had time because I was always on a monthly book. Um, and I started sort of taking in little bits and pieces of DC work to sort of fill in those spaces. Um, and sometimes those DC jobs are a bit bigger than they, than, yeah. uh, you know, Greg would like them to be. but. Uh, you know, got to pay the bills and, uh, and I, I, you know, while he's continues to be this busy, uh, it's a good opportunity for me to sort of be doing a bit of both. So it does mean that, you know, in between each arc of black magic, um, I will probably do a couple of smaller, uh, mainstream things because it helps keep my profile, um, elevated it keeps sort of the the bigger paychecks coming in you know yeah. black, black magic does pretty well for itself but where it does well for itself is more in the ownership of the property than it is in yeah. the selling of the the, the um, issues themselves so um yeah, yeah it really sort of helps in a lot of ways career-wise to uh keep the the dc relationship happening with for me with the company but also for me with the audience yeah life is complicated so yes it might take (laughs) it might take a little while we haven't started the next one yet and in fact there's a pretty good chance that we won't be starting it until next year which means it will be sort of sometime in the second half of 2022 that the next start comes out so i'll have to think of it 
I'll have to think of it more like a European kind of album, you know, which come out every kind of two years or something like that. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> sorry, sorry, uh, uh, American comic readers. Yes, it is. It is very much a sort of more yeah. European style book. In fact, okay it's huge in France. I come from yeah. Europe. I grew up reading right. European comics, so I'm okay with oh, that. Oh, sweet. And I well, know, thank you. I know that we're in the half point, so that's that's good. Now, um, you, you mentioned the art in Black Magic, you know, like you need to paint everything. And the art's mm. really outstanding. I, I, I love you. the style and the use of the gray tones and with occasional use of color when, especially when magic's being used. And Yeah. Uh, how, how did you decide to go with this style of art? What was the process? There? Right. Well, I knew that I... I knew that I wanted something that was very atmospheric when we started talking about this project. I knew that I wanted to create a, a, a mood with the art and uh, I had a sort of pretty decent window in between uh, finishing my DC monthly book and starting Black Magic. And I was doing a couple of bits and pieces in, in that position, but one of the major things that I was doing was buying loads and loads and loads of different kinds of art supplies and just playing with them and testing them and seeing what kind of results I could get, what sort of spoke to me. I was waiting to sort of find the thing that looked right and felt right. Um, and I had sort of, you know, practical uh, rules for myself. You know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't sort of fall in love with, uh, you know, this particular kind of pen that uses a particular kind of ink that you can only get, you know, once in a blue moon from, you know, some country that I have little access to. It had to be like stuff that I can buy from the art supply store anywhere in the world. You know, it had to be. Readily accessible, was never going to run out. Um, so that was kind of my rules for the paper. That was my rules for all of the art supplies. And But just sort of in the testing of those things, I just needed to find what worked. Mm. And the end result was uh, because of all of this experimenting. And I do remember thinking, oh, God, oh, God, I like this so much more than I like anything else, but it is going to be so much more work and it's going to be black and white. And so I had to kind of sell Greg on that idea. Yeah. And so I said to Greg, look, I've got, I've got this idea, but this is how, this is the reality of, of this idea, you know, how long it will take and stuff, but I feel like it's worth it for the finished product. And I showed him a couple of samples um, and he said, I think that looks great. We can set our own schedule. It doesn't matter if it takes a while. We'll just do what we want to do. Um, and in fact, you know, the, the idea of it being a sort of black and white book with those moments of colour in magic, uh, even though it kind of looks a little like, you know, Harry Potter with a, with a wand sort of splashing magic around, the way I described it to Greg and the way it sort of plays in the book, which I don't necessarily know readers have picked up on, is that anything in colour 
is the it, it represents the presence of magic. So if it's not black and white, uh, and sometimes it's just like a little candle, it's yeah. just a little candle representing there is there is actual magic presence present here. Yeah. Um, the way I sold it to Greg is that the black and white is kind of how everybody in the world sees the world, and magic is the the spectrum that the human eye can't see, but the witches can. So we're getting to see what the witches can see. They can see all of these movements of colour, um, but the regular people, the muggles, don't. So yeah. that was kind of how I sold it to Greg. And so that has sort of been worked into the storytelling, that there are moments of colour that happen in front of people who don't know that magic is happening, yeah. but they don't notice it. Um and it meant that we could sort of have this subtle and sometimes incredibly not subtle storytelling device of any time you see colour, be alerted that there's something magical happening, whatever it might be, um, and that we're letting the reader see it like the witches would see it. Yeah. I, I did get that sense. Uh, um, oh, good. You know, and so uh, yeah, for, for me it worked. And um, the yeah it's it looks beautiful so yeah oh, thank actually you. uh one of the things that really stand out as well is that each panel has so much detail now yeah. uh, i um it's probably different how long does it take you to to work on one page you know um for for the dc staff regularly and and for this right well the dc staff yeah, definitely. So the DC stuff, uh, when I was just penciling, yeah. um, which I was doing up until I originally left DC Comics uh, in 2014, I can't remember when I left, um, that, uh, 2015, I can't remember, um, that would be seven pages, uh, sorry, five pages every seven days. Okay. So I was working seven days a week and I'd be able to produce five pages in those seven days. Um, when I'm inking at DC Comics, because I now ink my own work, that takes a little bit longer. Um, that would be maybe four pages every seven days. With uh, Black Magic. I need two days a page. So when when I'm sort of out of practice of doing black magic, it can take quite a bit longer. Yeah. When I have, you know, when our schedule kind of blows out and it's all amoebas and, and I don't have to be super disciplined, um, I, I can take a lot longer. You know, I can yeah. sort of faff around. Um, but I have had times where it's like I've got, you know, uh, I don't have 40 days to produce 20 pages. I've got 16 days to produce 20 pages yeah. and I can get that done. And what yeah. surprises me always is the bit that speeds up is the painting, not the drawing, because the drawing is, the, is all the sort of storytelling work. Yeah. The drawing is um, the, the drawing is where the sort of real, uh, foundation is 
the painting is texture and and light and shade and and movement Mm. um that's the bit that always surprises me that I can really speed up on um yeah there's been a couple of times where I don't have two days a page uh but I still have to get it done and you know when you get into the zone that slipstream of a creative zone uh you just sort of stop second guessing yourself. Um, I'm I'm not someone who tends to take shortcuts when I have no time. I tend to actually actively uh, challenge myself. You know, there there is in the first story arc of um, uh, Black Magic, the first trade. I think in issue five. That was one of those times where it was like, I don't have two days a page on this. Um, But there was a panel and it's an incidental sort of scene establishing panel, which the only way I could think to make interesting and fit the tone of the book and this, that and the other was to have a spiral staircase. But the angle that I needed for the scene to be visually interesting was going to be a three-point perspective. scene and so I needed to draw a three-point perspective spiral staircase and when you don't have time that's not the kind of decision that people tend to make but it's the kind of decision that I'm just sort of like I have no time so I'm just going to shut up and do it and I (laughs) and that tends to be when I produce my best work because I'm not I'm not getting in my head I'm not wasting time I'm just shutting up and doing it and I tend to produce yes the sort of the the more adventurous things when I have no time to, to think about it all right so next time I see a really really elaborate uh, page uh, chances are I have no time yeah like, okay she she was under pressure here yeah look at the end <laughs> of every story arc that was when I had no time yeah but right. it's almost always where things are accumulating and becoming a big thing and I've decided to do something ridiculous. Yeah. Now, look, the, the book looks amazing. And, and, Thank you. and one thing that really stands out about your art to, to me is as well that it, there's always so much detail and I love getting lost in every panel. So, um, oh, sweet. Thank you. What's it like working with Greg? And, and the, does he give you a very detailed script? Or do you have room to create and add your own flavor? And I imagine this being more a collaboration, maybe there's more back and forth and between you two. Or? Yeah, look, Greg, Greg 100% is the most transparent and collaborative writer I've ever worked with. He's just, and, and a lot of that comes from the fact that we've known each other for a really long time. Um, we've worked together quite a bit over the, um, you know, 15, 16 years that we've known each other Um, and we're friends. So, you know, we have a pretty decent shorthand between us um, and a very good understanding of each other's strengths and weaknesses. And I think we we play very well together in, in those terms. Um, you know, we, we both sort of highlight each other's best stuff. Um, and so when it comes to, oh, look, every job that we've worked on, he likes to talk with me quite a bit before he writes anything. So we'll sort of really talk 
in sort of more abstract ways, not really about story specifics. We'll talk in quite abstract ways about sort of tone and direction and our understanding of things in a broad sense. Um, so I always have an idea of where things are going. Yeah. Um, but he will then sit down and write his scripts and he writes, he writes what I would call a full script, but it's not like an Alan Moore script, which yeah. gives you every single piece of information to the point of it actually being a little overwhelming because it's hard to, it's hard to find what's relevant in all of that information. Yeah. You know, if, if you're told about every detail of a scene, but you know, the lamp in the corner is the MacGuffin and you don't know that uh, because it's buried in all of this other information. Yeah. That is that I find that kind of scripting uh, a bit overwhelming and quite taxing because you're, you don't know how to balance what's important. Yeah. Um, and on the other side of the spectrum is that sort of old school Marvel method of, it's the idea of what's happening. You work out all the details and I'll put some dialogue in later. Yeah. Greg knows that I like the specifics of the dialogue. He knows that I'm used to working from, from sort of uh, plays and, and, and teleplays and, and film scripts and stuff. Yeah. So he'll be very particular about the dialogue and he'll be, uh, he'll point out anything that is, a specific requirement in terms of a prop that needs to be in the space or uh, a, an unexpected tonal shift or, you know, whatever. Yeah. But he'll essentially leave me with it's, it's, a, it's so character specific, his scripts, that everything else is a little bit up to me. Yeah. So... I will get the scripts and I will, you know, read through them and I'll play with the dialogue and this, that, and the other. Um, but I tend to more often than not decide where they're set, you know, unless it's a specific, this takes place on the front steps of the house or this takes place in this part of the bathroom or, or whatever. Um, I'll sort of work out the blocking of the storytelling. Um, and almost all the details in the houses and so in the spaces. So that is sort of, that's all me super indulging myself as well as sort of adding to the richness and flavour of the world that we're producing in Black Magic. That so that's sort of like one of my, oh, my God, I can't tell yeah. you. I really you can't can, tell you. You can put your own flavour to it. You can add your own things and all that. Well, I'm and getting I guess to having that kind of conversation right at the start about all the general story tone, all that, um, you know, gives you the idea of okay, well, if we're in this part of the story, you know, the overall thing. So, yeah, yeah, because what's kind of what's kind of nice about working with Greg is even though we've had these sort of reasonably elaborate conversations. He's not talking specifically about story beats yeah. necessarily, unless there's sort of like a, occasionally there's like a moment where he's like, I have this sort of point where this is the result that I need. Mm. Uh, and this is kind of how we're funneling into the crisis moment that 
produces yeah. that result. How, how do you see, and it will be about character, it will be about context, it will be about a lot of different things. And so we will talk about this sort of, you know, 360 degree space of a moment. Um, but he will always go off and then write the specifics of the script and he's always trying to surprise me. He always wants me to email him once I've read the script to go, oh, my God, that's amazing. <laughs> and I always yeah. want to surprise him. So, you know, even though he knows where the story's going, how that story is told is kind of part of my job and uh, I like to surprise him with how I visually represent the story. So That's we awesome. have this sort of nice nice thing of sort of it being so collaborative but we still want to make the other person so happy yeah. and impressed with our contribution to that story. So Sounds like a really uh, we have a lot relationship of relationship where you know you, it's a you really kind of great trust each other and challenge each other at the same time. Yeah. So and and you know awesome. luckily he will sort of um you know he'll sort of take the visual elements that I have included whether it's you know the the spaces that I've created for these people to be in and he'll sort of you know once he's got that visual language in his head he can then write for that visual language. Uh, you know, there, there is a scene, you know, we're seeing more and more as the story goes on of Rowan's house. Yeah. Uh, you know, we finally saw her bedroom the other day, uh, uh, you know, a, a few issues ago. And that was a space that's a really intimate space that we haven't been in before. We were in her childhood bedroom in a, in a scene and I was very particular about the contents of that room. And when we were in her adult bedroom, it's not the same room, even though it's in the same house. Uh, and so the layout of the room is different. Yeah. Um, but I did want the flavour of the room to be similar in that, you know, it's still the same person. And, in fact, there are some items in the room that were in her childhood bedroom as well. So I'm very sort of particular about um the specifics of things yeah. which I think is the kind of detailing that Greg really appreciates too me too anyway oh, good. Uh, thanks we should wrap up because I'm sure, sure you you've got more important things to do than talk to me <laughs> uh, now you, you worked on this is future state recently uh what's next yeah that's for, right what's next for you what should we keep an eye out for that you can tell us, of course? Oh, yeah, Sometimes right. I know um, you can't tell us about some things. Yeah. I'm just trying to think what I can tell you about. <laughs> oh, look, I have some covers coming that are for various things. Um, I have the feeling I just did a short story for something and I've forgotten what it is. Oh, yeah, I know what it is. Um, Yes, uh, 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 an anniversary story. Actually, I think this has been announced with Tom Taylor. Um, we're doing a um, Green Arrow's 80th anniversary is coming up. And so he and I have done a short story for that, which is really cute. Um, Can you is, tell there me is a really, Green yeah. Arrow and is the Black Canary there as well? She is. 
Because the way he writes uh, the two of them together is just awesome. So it's it's very cute. They're, they're, she's not in a lot of it, yeah. but she has a, a a great scene, and yeah, she's great. It was a lot of fun, a lot of fun to do that story. Um, there is at least one really big DC thing coming, but it's probably quite a while before it will be announced. Okay. So I don't know that I can talk What's about that, thing? but it's, it's very, it's very exciting. And I'm sort of Rolodexing how I'm going to approach it before, you know, cause it, it's, it's quite a few months away before I even start the job. Um, okay. But it's very, very exciting. Cool. We'll wait for it and we'll wait for Ascension too. <laughs> oh yeah. Sorry. Might be a little while. <laughs> yes. Uh, now, uh, finally, to, to finish, we always ask our guests to tell us about three comics or graphic novels they've read recently or three graphic novels that they would like to recommend or... Um, oh, right. So... Uh, well, but, yeah. the most recent graphic novel that I've just reread is um, the first few Old Guard trades. Yep. The old guard, because I'm doing a, a short story for a project for the old guard. So I've sort of been rereading that to sort of refamiliarize myself with the, the characters. So I can highly recommend that because that's a great story, also by Greg Grecker. Um, what else have I been reading? Some of the future state stuff was a lot of fun. Um, Andrew Constant, who's also Australian, he and I um, had a lot of fun on Future State Nightwing. Um, Future State Catwoman was pretty fun. Um, that was good fun. Uh, what else have I been reading? I was very pleased, by the way, by um, the, the way people responded to, to the story that you guys did, Andrew and you. You know, yeah, people responded really positively to it. So that yeah, that was, was that was really that. exciting because yeah. Nightwing is one of my favorite characters. It's one of Andrew's favorite characters as well. Yeah. So you know the the fact that we got to work on it together, uh, and it's a character that you know he and I had talked about quite a bit before. Um, that was kind of exciting that we were offered that job together. That was, that was great. And yes, the response to it was really positive. So that was very fun. And then to sort of be able to hand over the reins to another Australian, Tom Taylor, who's now writing the Nightwing regular monthly series. Yeah. So that's great. Um, I, I read everything by Tom. Um, um, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, his, yeah. his writing is really fun. Yeah. Uh, so thank you so much uh, for That's your my time. Pleasure. You've been incredibly generous, and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to to talk to you. Um, That's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and um, we'll be waiting for for that big DC thing, <laughs> whatever that is. All right. Thank you so much, Nicola. Thank you for having me. Yes. You take care. Thanks for listening to Aliographic Podcast. Hit the subscribe button on our YouTube page and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Aliographic, email us at aliographicinfo at gmail.com and check our blog, aliographic.blogspot.com for updates, monthly roundups of news and new release titles. <laughs>